Welcome back to the Padang Sessions. In this episode, writer and literary translator Pauline Fan traces Latif Mohidin's travel writings and poetry from the 1960s. Okay, Pauline, we know that Latif began painting at a very young age. Um, he was considered this uh, prodigy who was winning competitions at the age of 11. But he only really started writing poetry uh, much later when he went to Berlin and started uh, uh, studying at the National Art Academy. What, why do you think the, the, uh, this happened much later? Yeah, um, I think uh, Latif's time in Berlin was a really formative one for him. And I think in not just for uh, the visual arts, I think that something happened like a process of really setting his creative, his creative forces free in a way and the creative energies. Berlin um, still till today is an incredibly dynamic place. It is a place where you do feel the various, um, I think the pulse of a lot of European history gathering in this space. Of course, because of the, the history of Berlin itself and uh, the history of the 20th century, it has a very long history, um, also beyond the 20th century, of course, of visual art as well as literary tradition. Um, and you do find all these things kind of presently, um, or you are able to at least access those worlds of the various traditions of both literary and also uh, visual arts. Um, in Berlin. And I think this was also the case, of course, in Latif's educational experience at the, at the Fine Arts Academy in Berlin. At the same time, um, you must remember that this was the time he was, he learned the German language. And I think when you learn the German language, for him, it was like a process of, um, to use a phrase by Elias Canetti, um, setting the tongue free. This, the tongue is kind of set free. And with that, with his tongue being set free, I think also um, creative forces are also set free in that way. Of course, he did. He started reading um, quite a lot of poetry, not only of German poets at that time, but also of the French symbolists. And I think there are particular poets who were very influential to him. Um, I can name four. I'll talk about them a little bit. I think really the two that um, Pat Latif has, has mentioned in conversation, one of the reasons me and Pat Latif have a and nice um, communication and friendship is really because of our connection with German poetry and the two poets who he has really feels close to his heart. And I think also you can find um, elements of those influences very clearly in his poetry are Rainer Maria Rilke and also uh, Georg Trakel. These are the two that, I mean, I, f I first spoke to him about Trakel and it was like a connection, you know, this, um, one of my favorite poets as well. But Rainer Maria Rilke, of course, was the, he is the German language poet. He was one of the, not really considered a so-called modernist, but kind of bridging the traditions of, um, the more traditional poetic practice of, of German, um, poetry and also into the modern period. And so he's kind of seen as this, this linking passageway, which connects the kind of ancient, mystical poets like people like Hodelin into the more modernist poets um, like Georg Trakel. Yeah, and so very briefly, these are, for me, these are the four poets, um, the four European poets that are actually very influential in Patlatif's poetic practice. Charles Baudelaire, of course, was um, what seemed to be the father of um, modernism, modern poetry and modern literature in France. Um, and Arthur Rimbaud, of course, a little bit later, was one of those very powerful forces of uh, poetic, kind of really freed up the, the French language in a way. And I think those, the influence of these poets, um, or at least the sensibility, is not only evident in Pat Latif's poetry, but also in his own approach to art in general. Um, Georg Trakel, so... Yeah, Georg Trakel also, and also I think with Charles Baudelaire and Georg Trakel, there is a sense also of the looking at um, the kind of underside of society and also of nature. And I think Georg Trakel was very important in this sense because 
I mean, even if you see in, in the Pago Pago works, that you do find that it is not only a kind of organic uh, growth and organic proliferation of forms, but there is also a sense of the decay. And this was a very important aspect of Georg Trakl's work, the decay, always, you know, the, the decomposition of nature. And in mirroring that, the decomposition of uh, the human condition and the human soul. This was a very important influence um, from Georg Trakl. Um, for Reina Maria Rilke, I've always felt that there were certain poems from Latif Mohidin that I felt had a kind of Rilkean sense. And of course, Rilke, um, not only was he one of the great poets of the German tradition, he also had a very, very strong link with visual arts. He was the personal secretary for a while of uh, August Rodin, the great sculptor. And of course, Rodin himself was one of those who who shaped his own vision of poetry. And so the, there's the way they shaped, you know, the, there was a time when Rilke started off being very kind of, um, you know, this kind of mystical without being religious, you know, and kind of looking for, um, talked a lot about solitude, solitariness, and um, the place of man in this existential landscape. But Rodin was the one who taught him to see objects and to actually talk about the physicality and it really kind of changed his, uh, his own poetry and his practice. There is one poem I want to read by Latif Mohidin um, that, for me at least, kind of captures the Rilkean voice as well. Whether it was intentional or not, I think it's there. Okay, I will just read it in case um, you can't see it in the slide. It's called Tenang Telamambawa Rasa, Buat Uda. Tenang Telamambawa Rasa, Rasa telah membawa kau kemari. Kau telah memilih untuk tidak tinggal diam. Setiap yang kau pegang terasa lama. Setiap yang kau jauhi terasa dekat. Waktu pintu tertutup, kau ingin keluar. Waktu ruang terbuka, kau ingin duduk. Kau duduk untuk berdiri. Bungkusan yang kau buka, kau ikat kembali. Yang kau pinta, kau tolak. Yang kau jerat, kau lepaskan. Setelah patuh, kau engkar. Setelah menang, kau mengalah. Tenang telah membawa resah. Resah telah membawa kau kemari. Tapi kamarmu bukan di sini. Dan kau merantau lagi. I have also the English version. I will just quickly read the English translation. So um, the English translation by Edin Ku is um, the, the calm has brought the storm. The calm has brought the storm. The storm has brought you here. You have chosen to not live still. All that you hold feels old. All you've forsaken feels near. When doors are shut, you want to leave. When space is opened, you want to sit. You sit to stand. The parcel you opened, you bind again. All you request, you refuse. All you snare, you set free. Having conformed, you renounce. Having won, you surrender. The calm has brought the storm. The storm has brought you here. But your room is not here, and you wander once again. Now, this sense of wandering and this sense also of the room is very evident in some of Rilke's poems. And Rilke, there is one in particular, I won't recite the whole thing, but there is a... It's called Eingang, an entrance, entrance. Um, and it begins with those, that very image um, of, um, it's, wer du auch seist, um, geht hinaus aus deiner Stube. This, get, come out from your room, whoever you are, come outside of your room, um, darin du alles weiß, where you know everything. And wer du auch seist. And it really tells you to emerge from your room, go into the wilderness, and search, you know, and it's this kind of search of the solitary individual, which I think is very evident in Patlatif's work. Um, there's also the one, the sense of the wanderer, which is, of course, so evident in his travels and in his art, is also something that um, goes back, of course, to the Minangkaba tradition, this sense of marantau. Um, this is, this, this is something that the Minangkaba was, of course, as a coming of age, traditionally, uh, for Minangkaba males. The men, it's that coming of age kind of rite of passage, you know, that they have to go and merantau. 
and this is something also I think he carries with him. So, of course, the influences for Latif's poetry and poetic practice, as well as his art, I think, come from all those directions. So it's not just that he went to Berlin and was suddenly transformed into... I mean, of course, he carried all these other influences with him as well. But, I mean, how different was it from um, the poetry that was being produced earlier? I mean, there's... Um, I think Baha Zain, in an essay published in 1973, uh, he wrote, Latif's poetry brought in a new mode of poetic expression in Malaysia. So just compared to um, the poetry that was being produced in the 50s, for example. Yeah. I think it was uh, very different. It's, of course, it's, it was a continuum. Um, but you, but the, the main predominant, if you can point to a literary movement of the 1950s in Malaysia, was the Asas Limapulo, which is the Angkatan um, Sastrawan Limapulo, which um, was... The predominant figure in that was Usman Awang, of course. Of course, he was a very, very dear, beloved friend and mentor to Palatif, um, but whose style was really quite different. Um, Usman Awang, of course, was, was very lyrical and really had a beautiful, um, beautiful language, um, use, use of the Malay language. But his, many of the concerns of the writers of Asas Lima Pulo were very much shaped by social concerns. And in fact, they, there was this, um, I mean, this art for society rather than art for art's sake. Yeah? So this was the, the kind of um, schism that they were debating. Of course, this came out naturally also because this was the time of nationalism, you know, and this was the time, this was the 50s into Merdeka. Um, this was the main concern of many of the, the Malay writers at that time. Um, and Usman Awang talked a lot, and many of them talked, um, spoke also in a, quite a narrative fashion, this is something that Latif doesn't really do. He doesn't really talk about, he doesn't really have a, this narrative, um, you know, telling a story in his poetry, which is something which many of the, of course, if you go back to traditional Malay poetry, a lot of that is, is like the Sha'ir, and much of it is narrative, not all of it, but some of it is narrative. Um, Thirhi Kayat, and also Pantun is a bit different, and I think Pantun is also very, has influenced Latif a lot, because the Pantun form has that, um, that kind of imagistic sense, even though it's a traditional form, but it has, you know, this, because it's, it's made out of four, um, of course, most of us should know what a Pantun is. It's this four line made out of two couplets each. And the first two couplets called the Pumbayang Maksud is really, it's, can be quite abstract and sometimes even quite surreal. And, and in that way, it can be, I think, it can be adopted very much into the modernist practice. Um, because it has this, it doesn't necessarily relate to the second half. It's very much, it's very often imagery and metaphor. Um, and a lot of it is sound as well. You know, this is um, an important thing as well. The sound of the poetry, not just what it is saying. And that's something I think Latif pays attention to. What about the language? I mean, did, did Latif use more kind of everyday language? Um, I don't think it was so much everyday. Day in the fact, not as maybe flowery as some of the older poems, but, uh, but also a little bit more towards abstraction, like his painting as well. There, even in his poetry, I think there were um, times where he kind of tries to abstract. Um, I, there is a, I put together, like just to juxtapose an example of an Usman Awang poem um, and a Latif Mohidin poem, but that is, they're both talking about love. Um, the famous Usman Awang poem, Kakase, is very beautifully written. Um, and it is modern. I mean, the, all, all these things are, are very much, he was modernist as well in a different sense. You know, it's, it's not that one was more modern than the other. It's just more, um, they have different kind of uh, impulses in the way they express that modernism. Um, but Latif Muhyiddin, I do think, is also playing more with form. And perhaps that also, you can even visually if you see it on the page, there are certain poems like this, the one that I will show you soon. You can also see that in physically he is doing something um, with the form. The way he arranges it on the page is also important and not just um, what he's saying and not just um, also how it sounds. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Usman Awang's poem, which is a really beautiful poem. Unfortunately, I don't have the English translation, but, uh, but just to let you hear it, Kakase. Akan ku pintal bue-bue menjadi tali mengikatmu. Akan ku anyam gelombang-gelombang 
menjadi hamparan ranjang tidurmu. Akan kutenun awan gemawan menjadi selendang menudungi rambutmu. Akan kujahit bayu gunung menjadi baju pakaian malammu. Akan kupetik bintang timur menjadi kerongsang meninari dadamu. Akan kujolok bulan gerhana menjadi lampu menyuluhi rindu. Akan kurebakan matahari menjadi laut malammu, menghirup saka madumu. Kekasih, hitunglah mimpi yang membunuh realiti dengan syurga ilusi. This was a 1971 poem by Usman Awang. Absolutely beautiful, but um, just to show you that, uh, I mean, it's still, if you look at the form, it still does have a, you know, three lines each, and each kind of starting with this uh, akanku. And the way that Latif approaches a similar subject. Um, and Latif, I think, the imagery itself is actually more erotic. It's, it is also talking about the beloved, but it's, it's, it is more erotic, I think, and uh, sensual, um, overtly so. And the, the imagery that he uses, is, the metaphors that he uses, really evokes also the erotic act, I think, much more directly than Usman. Um, so, Sajak Sajak Tengah Malam. Malam ini, bulan telah membuka tirai emasnya, ombak telah membuka bibir merahnya. Mereka bertemu di sini, di lereng pinggangmu, untuk menyaksikan tarian asyikmu, tarian mautku. Kulihat bagaimana kusapu alismu dengan manisan. Kulihat bagaimana semut mabuk di lengkung alismu beriringan. Dari kerongkongmu yang sepi, ku dengar serigala meraung, kuda meringkit, singa menderam, tiada hentinya, dan halkumku turun naik semakin keras, menyahut pekingan, pekikan kerongkongmu. Pahamu kacip yang lembut. Tujuh lautan gelombang di pusat perutmu, di pusar perutmu, berpusing. Denyutan purba memanggil namaku. Ku turuni bukit. Ku tinggalkan padang luas. Aku merangkak kembali ke lubuk kelammu. Uh, this to me is a really erotic poem. I mean, the imagery itself is really um, very evocative, yeah? Uh, much more direct, directly, and but also very... The, the metaphors, I think, are genius, relative. Um, but if you can see, you know, you can see actually that the form itself the way he's arranged the, the, the poem it itself is visually very different. It's not this kind of structured. And, and he's put them into two sections. Also, one of them is like th three, almost just five words. Um, the Poems of the Deep Night. This night, the moon unfurls its golden curtain. The wave opens its red lips. They come together here at the slant of your waist to witness your dance of ardor, my dance of death. You look at how I graze your eyebrows with sweetness. I look at how the ants intoxicate the arc of your eyebrows in procession. From your silent throat, you hear the wolves howl, the horses whine, the lions roar incessantly, and my Adam's apple rises and falls, hardens, answers the scream of your throat, your thighs, soft scissors. Seven seas, a single wave on the navel of your belly, undulating an ancient pulse, calls my name. I descend from the hill, I leave the open field, I crawl back into the depths of your darkness. It's translated by Eden Um Yeah, this to me is a, a good example of, of how how different Latif was um, and what he actually brought to Malay poetry of that time. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned Berlin and I wanted to ask you more about that because I think Latif writes a lot about that experience of being in Berlin uh, and how you know, exciting it was and yeah. you get this impression he was this like sponge that was just soaking up everything. Uh, and also from everything from like Brazilian music uh, and he talks specifically about 
uh, Japanese uh, music and poetry and uh, kabuki dance. Um, I mean, can you... And I think it, all those influences, of course, made his poetry uh, very sort of multifaceted. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, like I said, I think Berlin was really a formative time for him for that he, he did absorb a lot of these uh, and encountered at first also a lot of these exciting new forms. Um, I mean, he, he went to see things like Gunter Grass exhibition, and this was an exciting time in Berlin. This is the 1960s. This was, it, he, I think Latif arrived actually one year before the Berlin Wall started to be constructed, which is a really fascinating time. I mean, Berlin was, it was really fresh coming out of this, not that far from World War II. You know, it was still, the, the wounds of World War II were still very much there. Um, and also then this thrust into, into the Western, you know, of course, you know, the, div the division of East Berlin and West Berlin, this was, a, this was a real thing, also the division of Europe. You know, and then the influences of both sides, both equally, the cultural influences from both the Eastern Bloc and the Western, were, I think, both equally powerful. I mean, um, and I think Latif was in the middle of all that, including, including he was there actually when Kennedy came to Berlin. You know, those historic moments. In fact, he writes, that's one of the things he writes about in his travel diaries. And he writes about it in the really beautiful kind of anecdotal way that he was, I think he had a, a toothache while he, and he was having, suffering from a toothache on the, the day when, uh, when Kennedy arrived. And it almost accidentally kind of happened upon this huge crowd and, but was there when, and listened to that, you know, Ich bin ein Berliner speech that famous Kennedy speech in Berlin. Yeah. So all the, he experienced all these historic moments. You know, he saw Philip Brandt driving by. And um, I mean, these were incredible times. And, and yes, of course, the, not just, it was not just um, an exposure to, to German um, art, but also to things like Japanese um, art, Brazilian music. Um, and, also, and many of his peers, the students in the academy itself, they also influenced him to, to look at things that they were doing. Um, those travel diaries are actually very interesting. The very beautiful and evocative time of his of his time that he spent a lot of time in Paris as well, and of course also um, travelled around Europe to places like Crete. It's very very interesting. Like Japanese haikus, right? Yeah, that, that's one of the things he yes. he was. He was Japanese haiku um, is I think another influence that has been very influential in in Latif's work. He, he did some versions even, he did some translations, not from the Japanese, but from the English. Um, but the haiku, the conciseness of the haiku form, and also, of course, the, the, the metaphors from nature, the images from nature. Um, and of course, the, it's interesting to note that also things like the Japanese haiku were very influential also in what we call modernist poetry, particularly things like imagist poetry. You know, if you think about the imagist, the imagist movement of the well, so-called movement of the people like Ezra Pound, um, of course, even in T.S. they were all taken up by things like this, um, the imagist nature of Eastern poetry. So Eastern poetry, older Eastern poetry, like the haiku and like um, classical Chinese poetry, was very influential in, in modernist European work and, and English Definitely in the English language, people like Ezra Pound really took those things and kind of transformed them. Um, even he did versions, he did translations of, of classical Chinese, and he did his own haikus. This was very influential in, in uh, European poetry as well, and then which then also became then influential again in, in our part of the world. Uh, I mean, we're s sitting here in this gallery with a lot of, you know, uh, beautiful works all around us. Um, so I think we should talk a little bit about the connections between his painting and poetry. Um, I mean, Reza Piedasa uh, called Latif's paintings a poet's vision of the world. Uh, and conversely, I think his poems, too, um, are very rich uh, with visual imagery. You know, it's, it almost feels like it's like a still life that then gets sort of set in motion. Um, can you tell, talk a little bit more about it? Yeah, his um, Latif's painting, particularly of this period, I think, 
does relate very much to his to his poetry because I think in some ways they were trying to to reach at a certain essence of something and um, and go beyond the form. Of course, he's using forms, um, and but he's kind of constructing his own vocabulary with using these forms. And I think he is particularly to his travels of to Southeast Asia, also applying certain things that he maybe picked up in Berlin. Of course, again, like the expressionist, expressionism, I think, was very influential in, in Latif's um, visual art. Of course, this, the strong lines, this, the colors, and, and the approach to, to forms. But of course, he, used, he transforms that into very much his own vocabulary. And I think he was using those techniques to then look at something like the structures of Southeast Asia. Of course, he did, after his travels in in Europe, he spent a lot of time traveling in the Nusantara region and also in the Mekong region. Of course, that's where he gets, um, like the Sungai Mekong was his, the first um, book of poems, which was kind of seen as to be something very new and radical in uh, Malay poetry. But they are very much related. And I think he... I think the way, the fact that he also wrote, he kept writing even the travel diaries while he was doing his paintings and also doing his sketches, they always go together. So he is always finding and discovering even. It's not that he's putting names to things. I think he's discovering. It's almost like, you know, archaeology that he's going and also discovering for himself and finding some kind of um, vocabulary, both in visual vocabulary as well as verbal vocabulary. And... I suppose, I mean, we could discuss uh, the relationship with nature, right? That, that's so prevalent in both the, uh, in both his art and, uh, poetry. Um, and it's a very complex, uh, kind of treatment of, of nature. It's not simply, uh, oh, you're inspired by nature. It's yeah. so much more than that. No, absolutely. And I, um, again, the, yeah, it's very different from, of course, the landscape painting that we, that we know of, uh, of previous times or this kind of romanticized or ideal, idyllic, idyllic view of uh, our part of the world, which, I mean, very often it's this Orientalist view of our part of the world is always this kind of idyllic, exotic, um, you know, the seductive kind of um, realm. And I think he was trying to, to deconstruct that as well. What is that essence of that? There is an energy. Of course, like you say, there is there's a sense of motion I think in all of his works, but it it does seem to also uh, challenge challenge those those the set ideas, visual um, images that many people do have of this part of the world. Also describing, I think, the effects I think of nature on your on yourself, right? I mean, there's almost a kind of mysticism, or yes. Yes. Um, no, absolutely the. Um, it's, it's very personal, and it's always and it's very solitary. And this is where, this is where I also feel that, as much as there is also that strain of, uh, I mean, if you want to think of of a European kind of sensibility, Rilke again, I think has that, you know, kind of, and but also German Romanticism, particularly um, the kind of Sturm und Drang movement of. Uh, of Germany, which is Storm and Stress movement, which which was actually a reaction against the Enlightenment. It was a kind of counter-Enlightenment movement, you know. This this Sturm und Drang is known as Storm and Stress, and it was in the 18th century. You know, so there were these writers, and Goethe was part of that. Goethe was actually part of that movement as a young man. Um, when he wrote things like The Sorrows of Young Werther, he was part of this movement to actually challenge the, the over... Um, the too powerful influence of rationalism. And the Enlightenment that was making everything, you know, kind of bringing everything out into the open and, and really sees man as this driven and governed by his rational senses. And they were saying, actually, no, you know, there's another part to man, the subconscious um, and the, the subconscious, which is also very much related to nature, that is equally powerful, if not more powerful. And it's actually the defining, um, the defining element of, of man's life. Yeah, I think that is also has some influence in in Lush's approach as well. Yeah, um, Sungai Mekong, of course, this talking about landscape. Yeah, the the way that Latif does relate to the landscape of this region, which again, I think we've also this was something new as well for for Malay poetry. I think that also 
this very personal, um, almost mystical way of relating to nature, which of course, again, I think some is Muhammad Haji Saleh, I think, who pointed out that also Latif, besides the modernist influences, was also very influenced by um, Minangkabau, oral traditions, which of course, if you go back to oral traditions, some of these oral traditions have this very immediate um, way of communicating and very immediate sense of, uh, of taking in also nature, of also improvisation, you know, they have the some of it is very, you know, things like balas pantun and things like that. So when we think of traditional literature, it's actually not traditional in the sense that it's stuck in time. The oral traditions are very much evolving all the time. And I think Latif does also grasp that in his poetry, that he does have this sense of also that you are evolving um, with the landscape and, and relating to it in a very immediate way. Um, yeah, so Sungai Mekong. This was when he was traveling in the, in the Mekong region. Sungai Mekong. Kupile namamu kerana aku begitu sepi. Kan ku benamkan dadaku ke dasarmu. Kaki kananku ke bulan, kaki kiriku ke matahari. Kan ku hanyutkan hatiku ke kalimu. Namaku ke muara, suaraku ke gunung. Sungai Mekong, nafasmu begitu tenang. Lengangmu begitu lapang. Di tebingmu, Ada ibu bersuara sayu mencari suara putranya yang hilang. Waktu ia merebahkan wajahnya ke wajahmu, kau masih bisa senyum senang. Sungai Mekong, akhirilah tari siang riakmu, tari siang riakmu. Kulihat di dasarmu kuntum-kuntum berdarah, batu-batu luka. Malam ini, Ribut dari utara akan tiba. Tebingmu akan pecah. Airmu akan merah. Dan arusmu akan lebih keras dari Niagara. And the translation, I'm, I'm not sure whose translation this is, but uh, River Mekong. River Mekong, I chose your name because I feel so alone. I bury my heart in your murky depths. My right leg, in the direction of the moon. My left, the sun. I'll leave my heart. Be I'll leave my heart. Be carried by your current. My name to the open sea. My voice to the mountains. River Mekong, your breath is so calm. Your winding flow so relaxed on your bank. A mother weeps, calling out to her lost son. And when she merges her face with your face, you could smile your unperturbed smile. River Mekong, let not your shimmering ripples dazzle me. On your silk bed, I can see many blooms of blood and stones with open wounds. As night approaches, a storm will come from the north. Your banks will collapse, and your current will be stronger than the falls of Niagara. Yeah, very immediate um, and powerful sense of the landscape, I think. He wrote this while he was on his big sort of epic journeys, right? Uh, and you've edited his travel diaries. And, uh, and I think that's such an important part of Latif. He's gone on these, you know, epic journeys. As you say, part of his Minang tradition. Uh, I think when he was 16, he got on a bicycle and, yeah. Yeah, you know, a, rode around the rode peninsula, around Mountain, yeah, yeah. which is quite amazing. Uh, uh, 1957. That was the time of the emergency, and you know he was quite young, and I think he didn't. This, of course, he didn't tell his mother. He didn't tell anyone he had gone off, and he had just wandered off. Everyone was looking for him, and there was some very, really, what they called black areas in that time around where he was living in uh, Negeri Sembilan, and he wandered off into those black areas, very adventurous and dangerous, actually. Yeah. And then later, after he came back uh, to KL, and then. Uh, did this huge uh, epic trip around Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and again, that was the time again. You yes. know, this is Southeast Asia was in the middle of war. It was, you know, the, the Vietnam War was happening. It's, I mean, this is not easy times, yeah. you know. Indonesia was you know, having, there's a lot of up upheaval and this are not easy times. Um, but at the same time, I think he found a lot of creative power. So his, his journeys to, into Jakarta and to, uh, to Bangkok, to Bali, you know, he, um, he met, I think this is the time he met Gunawan maybe for the first time, yeah? Maskun during the, the 60s. 
in yeah. this time. So how do you think that, um, I think him as a kind of wanderer, as you mentioned, you know, this, this idea, uh, I mean, this Baranta was such a fantastic, I think, the idea of wandering with purpose uh, and seeking knowledge, uh, you know. Absolutely, and also the, the sense that when you Marantau, I mean, eventually, that it is also to come back, to return with all this experience, you know, and you become how you are transformed by that and what you then bring back to your, to your community um, because of those travels and the experience you glean from those travels. Uh, shall we, do you want to read one of the, the uncle? Yeah, so this, again, this was, um, this actually shows a lot of how the, the relation we were talking about, about his painting and his poetry. Because I think when he was, well, as he was doing sketches, you know, and, and he did many, many sketches of, of Anko, um, he was also doing verbal sketches, you know, he was writing about it, and he was writing about how, um, so he was thinking through these things, through words, as well as, as through, uh, as visually deconstructing. Um, I'll just read a, a quick, this is one of his sketches, which is actually like a, it's a prose sketch, yeah. Uncle Sketches, number eight. So it is clear to me now that there are two basic forms of energy. One, the structuring energy behind the blocks of stone, forming them into tears like a lotus bud. Two, the cracking energy of nerve vessels, the pattern of thrusting banyan roots, the weaving together of its veins like a spread out net. One is man's composition, which seems to reach up to touch the sky. The other is God's creation, which longs to creep, to touch base, to penetrate into the earth in search of water. Two forms of energy that meet, embrace, clash, merge, that overlap, wrestle, intertwine, break away, surrendering only to attack again, meeting and trashing in throes. Moments pass, days and months pass, seasons, years pass, centuries pass. But the energy of construction and the energy of destruction seem to go on fighting the tremendous battle here, right in front of my eyes. And all the sketches I have worked at all these years, what can I say, are a mere scratch or two of the force of movement and violent, vibrant of such events. This was translated by Adiba Amin. Um, I think this wonderfully encapsulates what, what Latif was trying to to get at, at his, in, his, uh, in his works, as well as in his poetry. I think this is also very similar. But this kind of de this construction and deconstruction, um, this sense of decay, the sense of time and timelessness, the passing of time, um, both... I mean, of course, he was very aware of the history because he was traveling through these parts of, of modern... of war, of present-day war at that time. But yet there was this, this older kind of cyclical um, underlying history that has gone on for centuries in which you are just a tiny, you know, whatever art that you are creating is really just a tiny speck. And of course, I mean, who were, who were the artists or the artisans who created Angkor? We don't, they, we don't even know them by name, you know. So, and Latif, I think, sees himself also in some ways as a line um, and kind of adding something to that as well. I'm aware of the time, so I, I want to sort of go on to talk about um, Latif's role as a literary translator, uh, because I think uh, that is significant. I mean, uh, the contribution uh, in terms of having those texts in, in Malay and available to, you know, uh, readers here. Um, I mean, there's a nice quote uh, by Italo uh, Calvino where he says, without translation, I would be limited to the borders of my own country. Uh, the translator is my most important ally. He introduces me to the world. Um, and Latif has translated some very important texts. Yeah, very um, important. Um, one of them, one of my favorites is actually his translation of uh, Georg Buchner's Wojciech. He did this little anthology, uh, Puissi Modern German, from, from, which was published by Dewan Bahasa, I think, in 1987. And it's not, it's actually out of print, and I really wish they would reprint it, you know, or at least give the rights to somebody to reprint, because it's such a wonderful translation and, and such an important work, you know. Um, Georg Buchner, of course, was one of, also one of those greats, kind of before the so-called modernists, but very modern, you know, very in his impulse and his, his subject, um, and has also been reprint, you know, has been filmed by 
um, some of the great filmmakers like uh, Werner Herzog and people like that. So, yeah, that is one of my favorites. Um, but his language, and I think this also, the practice of translating is always also a um, recreation and also deconstruction again of your own language. You know, it's not just, it's not just you are bringing something into a new work into that language. You're also re, you're creating that language anew, your own language anew by bringing in this, this new work, this new sensibility. You know, there's, um, I always think, the Walter Benjamin yeah, always talked about you know, the task of the translator as finding, it's not just finding the right words, just say in Malay for the German original. It's actually finding in Malay this, the Germanness that may or may not exist in the Malay language. And if it doesn't exist, you have to create it. You know? And I think that's why it's so exciting for many poets and writers who are creating um, new works of of literature to also do translation because it it invigorates you it freshens it's you know it's this constant way of really reaching and grappling and wrestling with the very stuff of of literature you know and and you almost and it's also a very intimate experience and it's a wonderful way of really embracing and wrestling with some of the your great loves of literature i mean how you would never get closer to Georg Buchner than actually wrestling with his words. And this is the way I think Latif, why Latif also did a lot of translation is because I think he has this sense, you know, and it's not just people like, of course, Georg Buchner, he, he translated Mishima um, from English, but Mishima, people he felt, I think, an affinity with. So they weren't just random choices that he was, you know, this is an important work of the canon to be translated into Malay. No, I think all of the people he translated were very much artists or figures and writers he felt a strong affinity with. And whether they were haiku poets from, from the Japanese, um, or Rabindranath Tagore, uh, Gitanjali, he did a, he did a version of Gitanjali, also Omakayam. You know, the, but these are all very selected, carefully selected figures that he has translated. And each of them, I think, speaks a lot, um, about Latif himself and, and his own affinities, his own literary affinities. Of course, his last huge work that he translated was Goethe was Goethe's Faust, and this is one of the most difficult, of course. One of, I mean, I would never <laughs> dream of translating this work because it's it's so monumental. Um, it's incredibly difficult to translate. It's in, it's beautiful to read, of course, and but to translate it into another language, I think, is such a daunting task. And Latif has done it. I mean, in my estimation, I think he did a really brilliant, um, brilliant translation. And the brilliance of that translation is the fact that he accesses the Malay language so well to encapsulate that work, that it feels natural in the Malay language. This is always, it feels like it belongs there. It doesn't feel like it's something, you know, so alien and imposed. I mean, you can actually, you can feel it. You can feel Mephisto come to life in, in Malay. This is wonderful. I mean, I, can't, I think poetry must be the hardest thing in the world to translate. You know, I mean, you, you, you've, you translate uh, poetry. I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you balance? I mean, what is more important? I mean, because there's the meaning of it, obviously. Uh, but, but it's like rhythm and, and I mean, how do you translate rhythm? You know, yeah, uh, it's very difficult sometimes when, especially when the, the structure of the two languages are so different. You can't always reproduce it. If you're, t if you're working from something like Japanese or, or classical Chinese, obviously the rhythms are going to be very different from, something like Malay or English. Um, so you can't always find an equivalent for it, but you must always, I think, find some way of, um, of being aware and, and responding to it. So even if you have to create something else, um, but again, find a new way of, of looking at your own language. You know, so even if sometimes you have to, to make your own language more concise or make your own language more maybe rhythmic than it, than it usually is, and these are ways you invigorate the language. You know, it's always a challenge, and that is what makes it exciting. So it's, the translator is almost another sort of creator, in, yeah, in a way, you right? You are, totally, yeah. You are an, another creator, which, which is why I, a literary translator is not the same as a, someone who's translating you know, commercial documents. It's very different. I mean, it's, you, know, you have to have that literary sense. And if you don't, it's problematic, particularly for poetry. I think, for, particularly for poetry, you can't be too academic, you can't be too um, literal. 
or but but at the same time you need to have the the understanding you have to have of course the understanding of the and the, of the technical aspects and even the historical context and you have to have you have to have that but the essence of it really is instinct i think it really comes down to there's no formula to make a good translation you know you have to be able to hear listening i think is one of if there's anything it's actually listening it's not even you know you have to be able to listen to the to the original poem and also to listen to hear the that poem emerge in your own language so if you were translating latif's uh, poetry for example would you consult him i mean or or i mean or would you kind of go you know and do it yourself i mean how much kind of yeah. consulting would you Yeah, I've never translated Latif, but Edin has, of course. Edin has been translating Latif um, for some time now, and and he actually doesn't consult him while he's in the process. He does it, and then I think later, at a later stage, um, we'll show him the poetry, and they will kind of discuss it. And I think the main thing is to get the sense of it. I don't think he's going. You know, it's not like to reference and to say, you know, Latif, what did you mean with this? It's later. You get the really the sense of the. And I think it's the way he also works. It ends up translating Maskun's poetry, and it's the way he works like that is, you have to get the whole sense of instinctively, you know, this um, this poem, and later, and then if there's any if there are any details later, then it will be pointed out and discussed, and then it's just a matter of uh, refining. But the music has to be there already, you know. You can't because it is it is a it is a kind of music. It's it's like a yeah you are you are taking it's like a variation. Of the original composition. I mean, I do want to kind of open it up uh, to the audience. Uh, if you have any questions uh, for Pauline, hello. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, my question is just on this last point: Why are translators so neglected then? It really seems like that as you're talking about the translation process, I'm just so uh, overwhelmed by how impressive it is to translate. And yet, um, in our literary culture, uh, not only in Malaysia but I think very widespread, we seem to really be very uh, neglectful of uh, the the voice of the translator, as if the, the translator isn't also uh, speaking. You know, they really get uh, this idea that they're transparent or they're invisible, that they're disposed of, that the text just sort of passes through them. This is a very good question. I wish I could answer it. You know, this is this is one of the things we assign ourselves to as translators that we're not always. I mean, it's wonderful to actually have opportunities like this to actually talk about the art of translation and, and have an appreciative audience. But it doesn't happen that often. Um, there are I, there are certain trends I think in today's um, literary landscape that is maybe paying a little bit more attention. It's still very small. I mean, certainly, it's not in a commercial sense. Literary translation is not seen to be something. It's not like a best-selling. You know, it's not um, something. I think it's something like three percent of three um, to five percent of of the major literary output in the Western world is supposed to be that. But having said that, places like Germany do really have a very vigorous practice and tradition of translation. You know, and some of the and Places like that, I think they do recognize the importance of translation. Where certainly some of the great scholars, uh, German scholars, who even started translating, um, particularly um, poems from the Arabic and from the Persian, which was then very influential. And people like Goethe, you know, Goethe himself, you know, he wrote this Westöstliche Divan, which was very much like kind of a tribute to Hafiz. And of course, he could only do that because there were scholars of that time who were who were doing work. Very fundamental and foundational translation work um, into German of those of those works. So, so you did you do have a sense of that, I think, in the German tradition and in probably elsewhere as well, but maybe to a lesser extent. And certainly in the commercial in commercial publishing is very often overlooked. But having said that, these there's in small presses these days, which is actually where a lot of the more interesting work. In the Western world is being published. A lot of it is in translation. A lot of it is um, work that is in literary translation, and and I think it's getting at least a little bit more visible. That the role of the translator is getting a little bit more visible. Not. I wish it was a bit more in our parts of the world too, but but maybe it's slowly, slowly. Hopefully, this changes. Let me speak in Malay. Kalau boleh. 
Okey. Uh, berkenaan dengan Latif punya sejarah, kisah dia very informative. Tapi sikit sangat disentuh masa zaman dia di sekolah dan sumbangannya, especially di sekolah di Lengging dan KJV. Seremban. Setahu saya masa di KJV di Seremban, sumbangan Latif adalah ilustrasi map dalam buku teks sejarah yang ditulis oleh Jogi dan Singh. Dan bawah setiap uh, peta atau map dalam buku teks history book tu, dia bubuk inisial dia Alma. Uh, mungkin uh, tak apa-apa tahu. Da- dan saya biasa tengok buku tu. Uh, yang satu lagi, masa kami awal di anak alam, pengaruh latif jarang diperkatakan kepada anak alam awal. Masa anak alam awal, kebanyakan kami hafal sajak dia. Especially sajak darahku. Sampai sekarang dekat 50 tahun saya dalam kepala. Dan juga pilihan kami masa time tu, walaupun banyak cakap tentang sungai Mekong, tapi kami lebih sending, lebih skewed tu, Maya. Yang ditulis di Vientian. Pasal dia lebih pada masalah personal, rather than meluas kisah sungai Mekong. Dan kami hafal sajak maya dan pohon cemara. Nanti sixty nanti sixty six di Copenhagen. Thank you. Terima kasih. Yeah, the, do you need trans? Does anybody need translation for that? Um, yeah, this uh, this gentleman. I was actually saying that the because um, Latif's childhood also. Um, he he had already started um, drawing and he was drawing maps in in history textbooks. I didn't I didn't know that. I actually didn't know that. Um, Yeah, yeah, it says wonderful. And he had put his initials down there. His initials, yeah. Um, but also that how influential he was also in the Anak Alam movement, of course. The Anak Alam, the, the Anak Alam, um, artists also were memorizing his poems. Yeah, and I think, I think Lashi does have that. And again, the oral tradition is almost like, you know, you, you imbibe this end of, um, like this gentleman said that Maya, Maya, Latif's poem Maya was actually one of those poems which everyone was memorizing. I mean, this is something, you know, the memorization of poetry and this kind of thing, this is something that the Russian poets used to do. You know, the, the Russian poets of the Silver Age, Akhmatova and Pashtunak, and, you know, this is, they would, and they were in these little literary circles where they, they would recite each other's poems. And I think it's, it's wonderful to think that we, we used to have this kind of, of practice here. I mean, it doesn't really happen anymore, you know, now... We have all these festivals and it's all, you know, we have these readings and poetry slams, but it doesn't really feel like quite as organic. Well, certainly not as, maybe not as bohemian. It's a bit sad, but yeah, this is a, this is a special time. I think there's Anna Alam uh, time for poetry as well as art. Uh, thank you, Pauline. It's such a wonderful presentation. And yeah, it's, we met several times, we never talked about Radif and this works like this one. And I'm very happy to listen to that. Uh, my question is, when you touch upon Latif's connection with the Rilke, which to me is where I, I talked about it last year, last time, uh, it tells you about his connection with the visual art. But would you please elaborate more about Rilke's Ding Dicht? I try to incorporate in my next talk, but my German is very little, and I don't have the time. So please do that. <laughs> yeah, so um, the Muskin would like me to elaborate a bit on the, the Dinga dish of, uh, of Rilke. And this was, um, like I mentioned, this, that Rilke was very influenced also by his, his kind of mentor, Rodin. Yeah? And, and Rodin was, was the one who really went out, of course, one of... Um, the famous story that that Rodin told Rilke to go to um, to the the garden and look at the animals in in this garden and write about it, you know. And and Rilke went. And this is in Paris. And he went and he encountered a panther in a cage. And then and just from from spending hours observing and staring into the eyes of this creature, he then produced one of the most famous and one of the most considered to be one of the greatest poems in the German language, which is Der Panther. Um, and this was also, and then 
later on also he, he wrote these poems known as the kind of uh, Dingadisht, which was really, it was quite, uh, it's quite revolutionary for Rilke's poetry because Rilke, of course, was writing before that a lot of, you know, the Dishtunden the book, the book of hours that he wrote, um, a little bit more sort of kind of a mystical wanderer sense, you know, and not really looking at the, and more looking at those internal processes and, um, and existential questions. But then he, he transferred some of those concerns then to look at objects and, and how do you express that actually in, in the, in the solidness of, of objects, but looking under those objects. So, but it's something really the, this kind of, um, again, wrestling or grappling with the material to find something is more essential in that. And this, I think, was also this very influential in, this is maybe, I think, how Latif also approaches his, his work is through the material and through the solidness of something, the, sol the form, to get beneath it and to deconstruct it and to get to the essence of it by, you know, um, sometimes really also destroying that form itself. But through that, that it's, you can't just do it from outside of this, of this form and object that you also have to, you have to actually grapple with that itself. And that, that was something actually very new for, for Rika and for German poetry itself. We didn't actually talk, actually I wanted, because Masgun has uh, now asked a question, I actually think we just have to mention also the influence of Kairil Anwar on Latif Mohidin, because I think Kairil Anwar, of course, was someone who Latif Mohidin um, held very closely to him and in his own poetic practice as well. I'll ask you, uh, no, since we were talking, talking about Ala Alam, right? Because um, Latif did actually do a couple of, uh, well, he started the magazine, the literary journal, Dewan Sastra with Usman Awang. And there were other things that they did, like they organized this Hari Puisi, uh, which sounds amazing. This is like all these students came together and it was in East Malaysia and West Malaysia and... Um, all these different sort of activities. Can you talk a little bit about... Yeah, and I'm probably not the best person to talk about it. Probably Kanaga can say a lot more about this. But yeah, I think this was really an exciting time. I, know I was not even born yet, so I was not there. Yeah, neither was um, I. <laughs> but, this, but of course, we've heard a lot about it. And this, this, we've heard about this exciting time for Malaysian art. Um, yeah, I wish I was there <laughs> during this time. Of course, we've read about it. And, and I think it was for both literature and I mean Dewan Sastra at that time I think Dewan Bahasa was was really a radical institution they were doing radical things you know Usman Awang was at the helm of it and I think they were publishing um wonderful work they were they were exploring they were open they were trying to to look for this kind of yeah like this question of what is modern Malay literature I think this was very much a question that they were asking and and you know uh, I mean, again, just very briefly maybe to talk about, um, I think I'm more equipped to talk about the literary side of things. So I, besides things like the Ankatan, the Asas Limapulo, and of course people like Latif, then of course, um, people like Bahazain also uh, were writing. Um, and then there was also these little movements that kind of died out after a while. There's one called the Obscure Poets. You know, there was one obscure movement which was called themselves the Obscure Poets. And... And they were also doing something quite radical at that time, which was really going further and further into abstraction and going further and further into, in, away from meaning, you know, and more into to imagery, into sound, into, it was almost um, quite surreal, surrealist in nature, maybe even Dadaist in, in sensibility. But I think these were, um, these were concerns that were, that were very alive at this time and that people were putting into practice, you know, and not just thinking about it. They were really practicing. They were writing po um, poems like that, you know, and, and this is really interesting. There's also like some of the more Dadaist ones, like uh, the, the Taktun poems, Gafa Ibrahim, I think, yeah. The, the, this just really sound like, something like Kurt Schwitters, you know, this just kind of sound, Taktun, Taktun. I mean, this, these are all very interesting and very of the time, of course but you are really deconstructing the language, um, the sound of Malay. You know, what is, what is Malay poetry? Um, I think it's really exciting times. 
You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programs, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia-Kasim and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening.